know if you know this or not, but we have a sin problem. I should probably clarify that. According to research that's just been published, two-thirds of Americans admit they're sinners, but they don't quite know what that means. I remember going to um, some event, and there was a street preacher, and he was declaring that they should repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. And one of the, let's say, boisterous attendees of said event looked back at him and said, yeah, I'm a sinner. I go, I don't know that that was the intended response that he was actually going for there. According to the research, Americans tend to fall into three categories when it comes to sin, according to uh, LifeWay Research's um, survey. A third of Americans say they're sinners and they're working on being less sinful. While a quarter say that they're sinners and rely on Jesus to overcome their sin. Meanwhile, according to the data, one in ten Americans say sin doesn't exist or that they are not sinners, while a large share prefer not to say if they're sinners at all. And finally, only one in 20 are fine with being sinners. So if we say that the creed bears in it the marks the essential elements of what it is to be a Christian and what it is to understand what God is doing in the Bible, it would seem to me that when we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, we ought to have an idea of what we're talking about. So let's look at Psalm 32 this morning. We'll read the entire Psalm, all 11 verses of it. It's in your program. It's in your Bible. It's potentially on your smart device. Stand with me if you would, and let's hear God's word. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sins. Allah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer, a prayer to, offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, with, uh, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, 
all of you upright in heart. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, speak now for your servants are listening. In these moments, we desire to see Jesus and him only. And so may the one speaking decrease so that Jesus would increase. For his glory and our good, we pray. Amen. Be seated. So what do we do then with the people that say sin's not a big deal? What do we do with the people that say they're not sinners? How do we unpack this whole thing that the creed teaches about forgiveness of sins? Because see, here's the thing. The, the universe doesn't operate along the lines of karma. It's not simply a grand scale where you hope everything's going to balance out in the end. Where hopefully there's more good than there is bad. The, the, the reality is this is not at all what Christianity teaches about heaven or salvation. What Christianity teaches, what the creed reminds us uh, when it states, I believe in the forgiveness of sins is this. If you are a Christian, your hope is not that your good outweighs your bad. And your hope is not that you're better than the person sitting next to you. In fact, what our hope is as believers in Jesus Christ is what the creed reminds us, that our true hope, our only hope, is that Jesus has made it possible for our sins to be forgiven and that our hope rests on his good and faithful work alone. Jesus has secured the smile of God so that the blessings of heaven are not conditionally ours, but are wholly ours through the work of Jesus. This is what it means when we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. So if that's the case, why then would we talk about confession? I want to give you three reasons, because I think that confession, the, see, confession of sin and forgiveness of sin um, are, are so closely tied together, we need to talk about them together. After all, that's exactly what this psalm does. It wasn't just, hey, my sins are forgiven, I'm good. Because you'll remember, uh, in the superscript of this psalm, it's a maskil of David, now, most scholars would say that this psalm was actually written after Psalm 51. It's one of the penitential psalms uh, that we see given for us in the book of Psalms. This psalm written after Psalm 51, you'll remember that the circumstance of Psalm 51 was after the prophet Nathan had confronted David about his sin with Bathsheba. David then, under the, uh, the weight of conviction, but also the hope of his trust in God, goes and, and, and pours his heart out before the Lord in Psalm 51. This, in Psalm 32, a further reflection from King David. And so we know this is not one who is unsure of his standing with God. One of the things that I think confuses us about confession and assurance is it makes it seem like God's love is conditional. But what I want you to see in the psalm this morning is that's not it at all. So we have three things we need to talk about. 
Why do we confess our sins? Why is it that we would seek forgiveness? How do we do it? And then what's the blessing or what's the joy or what's the, um, the ultimate uh, benefit of doing that? So the first thing is, um, why would we confess our sins? So let's, let's step back then and try and give ourselves a, a definition of what sin is. If you look at the Shorter Catechism, sin is any lacking of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. So what does that mean? Either I... Uh, failed to do something that it said, or I directly did something that it said not to do. But see, the problem with that definition, no offense to the catechism, by the way, lovely document. The problem is it makes it feel like that sin is ultimately just breaking heaven's rule book. When I think it's something deeper than that. You'll recall a couple weeks ago from Kevin's sermon on shame when we talked about the idea that when the reality of um, who they were, when the knowledge of good and evil, when that tree, uh, when the fruit of that tree was imbibed into Adam and Eve, what did they do? They ran in shame and they hid and they covered themselves. They began at that moment to operate independently of who God had created them to be and how God had created them to live. So perhaps we could say that another way of thinking about sin, though that is no less than, it is no less than any want of conformity to or transgression of the law of God, we might also say that sin is seeking to become ourself or to get an identity apart from God. Sin is seeking to have an identity apart from God. We recognize that sin is incredibly disorienting, right? Um, David here in Psalm 32 uses three different words to talk about uh, sin. But before he does that, he sets up the whole premise of the psalm. It's not a psalm that says, we're in trouble. It said, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Now, blessed, um, it's, I think it's incomplete to see this word as simply meaning happy. And I think that the better way of understanding this Hebrew word, blessed, is to think of it as wholeness. Whole fulfilled, complete is the one whose sins are forgiven. That sounds different in my ear and gets us closer, I think, to what David was trying to say. He then goes on and says there are three different types of sin that he gives. The first one, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. A transgression is this idea of rebellion, right? This idea of an upturned fist that says, I've heard, I see, I acknowledge what you say, God, I should be doing, but I refuse. So that is this idea of transgression is in the, in the sense of rebellion. The next one is whose sin is covered at the end of verse 1. 
This, word, this Hebrew word for sin here is best understood as missing the mark. It's as if you were an archer and you took your, uh, your bow and your arrow and you pulled it back aiming at a target and let, it, let the arrow fly and the arrow came in and dug into the ground well before the target. You missed the mark. Third word he uses is this word in verse 2. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Iniquity is uh, crookedness, perversion, waywardness. It, uh, it can also mean um, uh, guilt and punishment or even intentional sins. It's uh, sometimes used in, in a general way to talk about sin as a whole. So what David is saying here is not just this idea of of sin in general, but sin in specificity and sin in all of the myriad gradations that it tends to manifest itself in people's lives. This is what David is saying. What's instructive for us about what Adam and Eve did in the garden is it is exactly what you and I do all the time. What we're doing all the time is we are propping up our best selves. We are terrified of someone, anyone, knowing, seeing, exposing us for who we really are and what we really think. I don't necessarily have a Becky in my life. But some of you are laughing because you know that now that name conjures up in Kevin's dream, it was, the, it was the shame of being exposed, of being at a school party with no, underpant, with, no, with no pants on. And many of us think that we can somehow put on the fig leaf that Adam and Eve did and prop ourselves up and hide, go on and live about our normal lives. Here's the problem with this. When we, when, we, when, we, um, when we prop up false fronts and fake selves in order to make sure that we're never discovered and that we're never found out, it actually becomes a cancer inside of us. So why would we confess our sin? We would confess our sin because this is the paradox of the gospel. The paradox of the good news of the gospel it is, is that it is in being exposed. It is in having the false self removed. It is having a, a full realization, a full accounting of who we really are that we can actually find relief. Why? That's where we need to go to next. Because if you look at what David said in verse 3, he said, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Have you ever felt that before? Have you known that there's something going on in your life that isn't right, that isn't, uh, it isn't in keeping with who God has made you to be? And rather than deal with it, you just say, well, maybe it'll go away. And you sort of shove it over to the side. And eventually, it just eats away at you. And this is what David said was happening to him. He said, I kept silent and my bones wasted away. 
So what's the antidote to this? The antidote to this is that we are given access to God through Jesus Christ in order to come and say, I have forgotten who I was, but I want to remember again. I have sought ways to find myself apart from you. See, it's not just that. It is sin exposing us. I'm sorry. It's not that in confession we are simply exposed and undone. It is that we are are brought before the throne of grace and God in Jesus is what is clothing us. David goes and he speaks before the Lord. He says, I speak of my sin. Look at verses 4 and 5. How do we confess sin? How do we receive forgiveness He felt the hand of God. He felt the weight of his sin. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Now, um, several things here. One, you've heard us say from this very pulpit that um, if you are a Christian, God is not angry with you. And that's true. And you can take that all the way to the bank. But here's the thing. The Bible also teaches us that God disciplines those whom he loves. It is actually the least loving thing that one could do if you love someone and let them keep on going in ways that were destructive. You would never think of doing that as a parent. You would probably not think of doing that as a friend. And so for David to say that God's hand was heavy on him was not that God was somehow disciplining him out of anger, as we as fallen creatures are sometimes prone to do. David felt the weight, and so what did he do? Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. When he was silent, his bones wasted away. Sin corrupts and corrodes from the inside out. It makes us hardened to the grace of God and to the tender touch of his mercy. And so when David felt the weight of conviction upon him, he called out to God and he confessed to him all the ways that he had created fig leaves in order to run from God and save himself. But that's the second thing that we have to say about this idea of confessing sin is it wasn't just that David opened his mouth and began to speak and make an account of what he did. He opened his mouth and he spoke to God, right? I confessed my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity from you would be the understood, um, would be the understood grammar that's operating there. The essence of sin, and thus the essence of confession, is that we have sinned first and foremost against God and God alone. David, in in Psalm 51, which he wrote earlier, would have said, Against you and you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. The problem is, for most of us, myself very much included in this illustration, we don't go that way. We deal with sin this way. If I've been caught, I will admit it. So it's very, um, I'm much more prone to confess sin to someone else when I've been caught and I have no other choice but to admit I was wrong. 
And it really isn't at that point because I am confessing and because I'm repentant and because I'm sorry. It's because I'm embarrassed and I want the situation to go away. But what David is saying here is that the essence of confession is that we would go before the Lord and we would say, as a matter of first importance, before anyone else was affected, which there could have been people affected, and before there was anything else wrong that was done horizontally in the world, what I am saying before the Lord is against you, O Lord, have I sinned. I opened my mouth and I acknowledged and I confessed my sin to you. And I didn't hide. If you look in verses uh, 5 and down, David said, I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. David made a full account because he was confident in God's gracious hand of forgiveness. It was not that David went, okay, well, if I tell you all, I'll roll the dice and maybe cosmic karma will come back my way. He said, I will trust in the Lord. So as we call out to God, as we name our sin, we declare to him the ways in which we have broken his laws, the ways in which we have failed in thought and word and deed by both what we have done and left undone. Those three words that we talked about at the beginning that David used to describe sin show up again. This is not an owning our sin when we're caught, but rather making a full account to the Lord. Because you see, this, this psalm is not written to people that aren't convinced that sin is a problem. This psalm is written to people, to God's people, who know that there are ways in which they have tried to find their wholeness and their hope outside of him. They have tried to find their identity outside of him. That they have tried to find their life outside of him. That they have broken his commands, his decrees, his laws because they didn't understand the law or the lawgiver. See, beloved, here's the thing. God's law, God's standard is not to, to crush us. It's to free us. God's standard is not so that we would become this, this slaven, rule-following, religious joyless people. God has given us his law. God has given us his word. God has given us his standard because this is what it means to be alive. This is what it means to be human. And so David has seen and acknowledged all the ways in which he has fallen and the ways he has fallen short of following God and his law. There's a warning. Some translators have tried to make it a less of an awkward warning than it is, but it's just an awkward warning. It says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. 
God is merciful and God is gracious and God is just, but there is, a, there is an expiration on that. At some point, God will be just and the judge. So why do we need to open up our conscience to the Lord at a time when he may be found? Why is it that we would do this? Um, several things, and I can, I can speak primarily from my own life. Um, there's something to be said for allowing the grace of God to cover all of me. Um, one, uh, one writer said it this way, hypothetical sinners need hypothetical saviors. See, most of us over time, um, we kind of get into this pattern where it's like, oh yeah, I'm a sinner. All sin falling short of the glory of God. This guy, right? Um, and we sort of become numb to our own sin. And that, I think, is the exact opposite of what the scriptures are actually calling us to. It's not a numbness to our sin, nor is it a wallowing in it either. It's not a, it's not a numbness on the one hand, and it's not just a being all consumed by it on the other hand. But there, there is a realism that God is calling us to, to say, who are you really? What are the ways in which you have sought to find your identity and your true self apart from the gospel and apart from God? And to the degree to which you are not able to admit that is the degree to which you are not able to let God's mercy actually cover you in that area. And you are still trying to do it on your own. See, the pattern of us in in worship having a weekly confession of sin is not to drive you nuts. It's to give language an opportunity to stretch us in the ways that we have otherwise begun to grow numb to the reality and presence of sin in our own lives. But it's not just to make us feel bad, it's to move us towards what our ultimate hope is. Because the creed doesn't say, I believe in the confession of sin. The creed says, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And so to the degree which we are grasping that we are deeply in need of the grace of God is the degree to which we will appreciate, we will apprehend, we will see glimpses of the myriads of mercy that God has poured out on us in Jesus. Those that who know and are continuing to be shown the full breadth and depth of their sin are the ones who can experience God through Christ Jesus, uh, who can experience in God through Christ Jesus the blessings and the hope of forgiveness and renewal. Our sin was a costly sin, but it was a cost that God bore himself. So what is our hope? Um, J.I. Packer says this. He said, if our sins were unforgivable, where would we be? A bad conscience is the most universal experience and the most wretched. He says, no outward change relieves it. If you carry it with you all your waking hours, the more conscientious you are, the more your knowledge of having failed others and God too will haunt you. Without forgiveness, you will have no peace. A bad conscience delivering at full strength, tearing you to pieces in the name of God is hell indeed, both here and hereafter. 
there are two dangers that Christians can fall into. Which is one, in the name of grace, not acknowledge our sin. And the other is in the name of sin, not acknowledge grace. So you can find yourself saying, oh, well, I'm, I'm covered by grace, and so I don't have to actually repent and confess of my sin. Here's what it does. It makes you numb. It makes you dead on the inside. But to then go to the other extreme where you're constantly tormenting yourself as the quote was here, this conscience that will never let you go, that's not what life is either. If Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly, that doesn't mean that you're sitting there tormented by your own conscience day in and day out wondering if God is ever going to actually truly forgive you for all that you've done. The gospel is both your sin is completely covered and your sin is completely known and God has not let you go. How do we see that here? We must hope in the fact that God forgives our sin. David didn't say, blessed is the one who's able to confess. Blessed is the one, verse 1, in whose, uh, whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. If David gave three words to describe sin, he gives three words to describe forgiveness. In verse 1, forgiven literally means to lift or carry away. Your transgression was like a boulder pinning you to the ground, but God lifted it and carried it away. The second word, whose sin is covered. This has to do with atonement. The blood of a sacrifice covered the sin of the people and restored their relationship with God. It's, it's telling, isn't it, that if we look at the, uh, the account of the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples in Matthew 26, that one of the things that's noticeably absent from that Passover meal is the Passover lamb. Because no longer will it be the sacrifices of bulls and goats. No longer will it be the sacrifices of, of livestock that will atone for, God's sin, for the sins of God's people for a season. But rather, it will be the Son of God himself who will shed his blood and ratify and bring in the new covenant. So when David says, whose sins are covered... Through the lens of the cross and the resurrection of the Son of God, we see this not at a temple with a priest going in and sacrificing an animal. We see this through the lens of, of cross and resurrection. The third word that David uses to describe what God does is actually in the inverse. It is what God does not do. He does not count your sin. This is an accounting term. This is, um, it's a bookkeeping term. It means to charge something to an account. 
when God forgives, he does not charge our sin to our account. This is the word that we see in Genesis 15, and Abraham believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. But it isn't just that God forgives us. You see, that's not our hope, is that we're not just left to a blank slate. What our hope is also is that God is actually in the business of changing us. When you hear our assurance of pardon every week, it is that God embraces you, forgives you, and strengthens you to what? To live a renewed life. This idea of being changed, being renewed, being made new is part of what God is doing. It is not just forgiveness so that we can go on and keep living as we did. It is renewal so that we can be changed as the people of God. Look, it's what we see right here in verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9, the psalmist is not quoting of his own wisdom. He is quoting of a word of the Lord that he has received. Where it is God speaking now and saying, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. See, it is God who is changing us. It is God who is at work within us. The psalmist is speaking about what God is teaching him. God is the straight edge. He is the plumb line. So how does this change happen? How is it that God is actually at work in us? Um, A man who was distressed about sin wrote to Martin Luther, the great uh, German reformer. And Luther, who was himself uh, long-suffering with agonies over this issue of this lingering guilt over sin, uh, this was his reply to this man who wrote to him. He said this, Learn to know Christ and him crucified. Learn to sing to him and say, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You took on you what was mine. You set on me what was yours. You became what you were not, that I might become what I was not. Compare this to what we see in Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, beloved, this is the beauty of God's never failing, never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. His covenant faithfulness. Verse 10, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, But the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. God has always pursued his people. And this is ultimately seen in Jesus. Who offered his own blood as the final sacrifice of new covenant ratification. The resurrected, ascended, ruling, and reigning Christ is the one who's given us his spirit to work in us so that we might find our lives conformed to the image of the Son whom God loves. So, back at the beginning, we talked a little bit about um, that sin is ultimately us trying to find our identity apart from God. 
you heard me say a couple different ways that we, we tend to confess sin when it's the big stuff and the bad stuff. But then it's all that little inconsequential stuff that we just kind of lose track of. C.S. Lewis, in his, uh, in his essay, Is Christianity Hard or Easy, said this. It's a longer quote, so hang with me. He said, the ordinary idea which we all have is that we, are, we have a natural self with various desires and interests. And we know something called morality or decent behavior has a claim on the self. We're all hoping that when all the demands of morality and society have been met, the poor natural self will still have some chance, some time to get on with its own life and do what it likes. In fact, we're very much like an honest man paying his taxes. He pays them, but he, but he does hope that there will be enough left over for him to live on. You see, part of what's going, what Lewis is saying here is what I alluded to earlier, that in, um, in our lives, we think that um, if we confess that everything is sin, that we can't do anything right, that God's just, just in it to make us miserable. Lewis goes on. He said, the Christian way is different, both harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want just this much of your time and this much of your money and this much of your work so that your natural self can have the rest. I want you, not your things. I have come not to torture your natural self. I will give you a new self instead. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires, not just the ones you think wicked, but the ones you think innocent, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. What is the hope when we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins? It is in part this, that God is not in the business of just stringing us along with a bare existence in life, but that God is giving us a new self. It's what the creed has been leading up to, isn't it? That God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried, descended into the dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, where he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that comes and brings this new life to us. The Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, and the forgiveness of sins. God is at work in us. Beloved, what are you holding on to today? Because you've thought it's no big deal. David said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Bring it to Jesus. What are you holding on to that you've not spoken to God about because of fear or shame in your life? Give it to Jesus. What are the things that are causing your bones to waste away? Give it to him. Give him all your desires, everything. He's not come to make you a better person. He's come to make you a new person. It is so that our voice 
would join in the company of the Son who leads now in our worship, the Son who gave his life for us and the Spirit who dwells within us, so that we might join with the psalmist in this threefold declaration of praise that we are a forgiven people and that we know this to be true. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. See, here's the thing. God has not come to make us a depressed people who wander around all day beating ourselves up for our sin. Know your sin. Know what you've done. Don't hide it from the Lord. Bring it to him. And then let him do what only he can do, which is forgive you of it, strengthen you, restore you, uplift you to live a renewed life. Thanks be to God.